This is Monica Perez of the Propaganda Report here with the host of my favorite podcast, The Rebel Capitalist. So please welcome George Gammon. Hi, George. How are you? I'm extremely well. Thank you for having me. That is great. I'm happy to hear it. I know you've been traveling a lot and uh, you're, you have such an interesting lifestyle being a totally confined mother of three teens in LA. I live vicariously through you and I kind of want to live in other countries and do all that fun stuff, but you'll have to do it for us. Uh, so, but you are such a fascinating character, George, you probably don't realize that. And I think people would find it very interesting to know a little bit about your backstory. You have a great podcast where you talk to the really smart guys, the, the smartest guys in the room in finance, which is stuff. I have a lot of finance background, but unless you really think about it and focus on it and stay current, it's just not relevant. It's very hard to always have your mind around it. Yet I've heard you say numerous times that you practically flunked out of high school and also that you just figure stuff out. You just think things through. You start with a piece of paper and a pencil or whatever. And I would just love for you to share with us that kind of wisdom. Yeah, because <laughs> that'll that, you know, that's the answer to brainwashing. That's the where it starts. You can even if you can't figure stuff out, then your overlords really shouldn't be in control of it. That's not a representative yeah. government. So anything you can't figure out, like I, I'm, I, that's a big red flag for me. So I would love for you to just tell us about how you think and kind of what your story is. Yeah, sure. Well, one thing I'd like to point out that I not only speak to the smartest guys in the room, but I think I speak to the smartest gals as well. That I is so off, true. I just got off the, the Skype call with my good friend, Lynn Alden. And I would put her up there with the smartest people I've ever spoken with in my entire life. Uh, she's right up there with Jeff Snyder and uh, guys at, at that level. So um, there's a lot of super, super smart people. And by the way, self-educated as well. Uh, her, She's got an, a, a very strong educational background, but I believe it's in engineering. It's not in macroeconomics. It's not in investing. But going back to my story, just uh, did very poorly in school. I, I had a lot of problems growing up. I got into trouble all the time. My parents were divorced at seven, so I don't know if that has something to do with it or not, but I just had a lot of, uh, just, if you look at the, the probabilities, there wasn't a very good chance that I was going to be successful in life at all. I think even in high school, my was it my junior year or something? You know, they vote people most likely to succeed or whatever. I was like the most likely person to end up in, in jail or I was one of those categories that just like basically just don't even try. And uh, the, I almost flunked out of high school. Uh, I ended up actually getting through it though. And then when I got into the real world, I just noticed that I, I just didn't want to do any of the other things that other people wanted to do. It, it didn't make sense to me to just get married, to uh, you know, have a family, get a nine to five job, buy a house, live the American dream. That just, it never, I just didn't compute. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like doing at the time. And so I started a t-shirt company uh, that failed miserably. And then I just kept doing other things. And that led me to the life of being an entrepreneur. And I had several businesses from about 2000, or excuse me, 1990, 
2008 or so to 2012. And I worked for some amazing people in that time frame as an employee and as a consultant. I think my last job job was in uh, maybe 2000 or something right around there. But uh, since that time, I've worked for myself in one capacity or the other. Uh, and in 2009 or so, I lost almost everything. Uh, it, I, I, at 34, I was a self-made millionaire. I'm trying to think through the timeline here. That was maybe 2005 or, or six, something like that. At 2009, I lost almost everything. So I got a big legal battle with the AG in uh, Connecticut. And that's what opened my eyes up to how dishonest politicians are. Because up until that time, I thought that they were just good people. They wanted to do the right thing, but they just got into difficult situations where there were no good choices, at least here in the United States. Of course, as Americans, we're led to believe that the politicians are great here. It's just in those other countries where they're evil and bad. And, and those are the ones that we really need to watch out for. Well, all that changed for me in 2009 when I had this personal interaction with this individual. Then through my life having interactions with other politicians, I, it kind of opens up your, your eyes as to how things really work. Uh, fortunately, I was able to make it all back between 2010 and 2012, and then I retired in 2012 at the age of 38. And uh, I needed to, I had a, a decent amount of savings, but I needed to get a, let's say a five or 7% return. So I wouldn't have to draw down my savings and I'd be able to live and I'd never have to worry about having to get another job or start another business for the rest of my life. That was the objective. So that led me to real estate. And then I, I, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about investing. So I started listening to podcasts and YouTube videos. And that's where I ran into the free to choose series from Milton Friedman. And from that just really, I mean, the second I watched like the first two minutes of it, I was hooked. I was like this, I don't know who the hell this guy is, but he's saying exactly what has been in my mind my entire life. He can just articulate it a lot better than I can. My, my from, father was a truck driver and he used to sit there on Sundays with me and watch it when it was live on PBS, not live, free but to like choose, yeah. first part, free to choose. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's really cool. Yeah. And I think it was it was late 70s, wasn't it? It was either late 70s or early 80s. Well, that would mean that I was alive and watching TV then, which I would rather not comment on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think so, I dated myself. <laughs> yeah. From there, uh, I started getting Thomas Sowell, who is now my, my favorite economist. And then I started to get into the investing side with guys who kind of had the same belief system from the kind of that Austrian free market school, because that's what resonated with me the most. As I think I had a huge advantage there because I had been an employee in my life. I worked my way, you know, from the time I was 15 years old, I had always had a job. So I, I was an employee, but then I was also an employer. So I could see it from both ends. And when you have the opportunity to be both, I think that the majority of the people will come to the conclusion that free market capitalism is by far the, the best system, by no means perfect but it's definitely the best thing that we have in an imperfect world with imperfect human beings. But I started to listen to Jim Rogers and Jim Grant and Peter Schiff and Doug Casey and Rick Rule. And, and then it just went on from there. And then I started to listen to some of the more mainstream guys like Buffett and Druckenmiller. 
And I read all the Market Wizards books, and I just completely devoured anything that I could on the topic of investing or macroeconomics. And the strategy that I really liked the best was uh, Jim Rogers, where you just buy things when you're, they're cheap and you sell them when they're expensive. <laughs> so at, at the time, real estate seemed to me like it was pretty darn cheap. And I looked at a chart of U.S. housing going back to 1900 adjusted for inflation, and I saw that it pretty much stuck with a, a historic trend line to about 2000, then went to straight up, as you know. And in 2012, around that time, we were right back at our historic trend line. So I thought that might be a, an interesting area to put some capital. And so that's exactly what I did. And uh, th it wasn't necessarily super, super cheap on a historic basis, but the cash flows were insanely cheap. So I, I did that. That's where I kind of started to figure out the game of real estate. And I did that for a couple of years in the Midwest. As an entrepreneur between 2010 and 2012, one of the ways I made back all the money I lost uh, with my uh, dealings with the politicians in 2009 was uh, by doing business overseas. And so I made a significant amount of money overseas. So it's very comfortable doing business outside of the United States. So I thought, Do you speak well, other languages? Oh, at the time I didn't, no. Uh, but I was just very comfortable doing it. So I said, okay, well, I've figured out this real estate game in the U.S. Maybe I can get bigger returns outside. So I kind of took the macro view and like, okay, we're going to might get some inflation. Therefore people's uh, social security checks might not go as far. So I thought, well, I'll go to South America. There might be some opportunities there. Cause I thought a lot of people would move to, the, to South America if we got some significant rates of inflation. So uh, I started investing down there uh, is the point. And in 2015, I started investing heavily in Medellin, Colombia. And I have a team of people now that, that work for me full time down there. Uh, buying properties from hopefully uh, motivated sellers, getting a, a good deal, and then keeping them in a rental portfolio or, or flipping them. And that kind of turned into a little side business. And then in 2019, we were doing so many projects, I thought, well, this would be a good TV show. They're very popular in the U.S. And why wouldn't they be popular in Spanish-speaking countries? So I went to the local TV station and I pitched them on the idea. And... This kind of is a, a good story that, that gives you insight as to my personality, which, which for me just seems normal. Uh, the, 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 whole, the whole way I live seems normal to me. I, I didn't even know it wasn't normal until I got on YouTube and people like yourself started to tell me that this was such a unique, <laughs> unique way to look at the world. Um, but at the time, I, I didn't really speak Spanish and I knew nothing about doing a TV show. I'd never produced one. I didn't know the first thing about it, but it never dawned on me that that was crazy to go to the local TV station and pitch them on how they should give me a time slot on Sunday night primetime. Uh, and they should, they should have me produce the show and, uh, and it would be a smashing success that it didn't dawn on me how that's just completely nuts. So I went ahead and did it and they said, Oh, they, they didn't really pay much attention to me at the beginning, but they kind of said, fine, if you produce something like a five minute, I think they call it a demo reel. You probably know that better than I would being in LA. Uh, <laughs> then we'll look at it. And if we like it, we'll kind of go from there. We'll talk to the executives. So I, I, I didn't know the first thing about it. I studied it. I figured it out. I watched just thou literally thousands of hours of reality TV show, which was a nightmare, but I just <laughs> kind of reverse engineered 
what they were doing to get the audience to watch it. And I noticed the editing, how they cut every three or four seconds as an example. And so I'm like, okay, I get how they're doing this structurally. Now I need to just do a five minute, you know, write a script. We'll, we'll play it out here. So we did it. We took it in and uh, th they watched it. And after re reviewing it, I said, okay, you know, when can you guys get back to me? And they said, we don't need to get back to you. It's done. You got it. This is amazing. So I said, great. So we did the TV show, 13 episodes. When we were going to, when we had the break, I wanted to keep the editors busy and because uh, they were fantastic. I didn't want to lose any of them. So we started the YouTube channel and initially it was about real estate investing, but that's not really what I like to talk about. And this whole time I've been involved with real estate investing, but my true passion is macroeconomics. And every single day, if I was at a job site or looking at a property or something, I'd have these earbuds in and I'd be listening to real vision. I'd be listening to macro voices. I'd be listening to whatever podcast, whatever YouTube interview I could with my favorite macro guys and gals and just trying to absorb it. I was just fascinated by the whole puzzle and trying to figure out what's going to happen next and inflation, deflation and money and the way the monetary system works and uh, the global economy and supply chains. I mean, it just was so interesting. And so, uh, but I didn't think anyone would want to watch a, a YouTube video on that. So we did the real estate videos and those were, those weren't really popular at all. But I'm like, listen, I want to do a couple of videos on this macro stuff. Cause I just want to talk about it. I don't care if anyone watches the video, I mean, who cares? I'm only getting 20 views per video anyway. And <laughs> you know, those are all my friends and family. So no one's going to watch it. Who cares what I do? But sure enough, I started doing the, the videos on economics and those were the ones that became very, very popular. And the, the YouTube channel exploded and we got to 100,000 subscribers within maybe the first eight months, something like eight months, nine months, something like that. And then I started the podcast, which is the Rebel Capitalist show. And that's just the audio that we ripped from the interviews I do on the YouTube channel. And then I uh, started Rebel Capitalist Pro, which is uh, I partner with Lynn Alden. And then I started another channel, Rebel Capitalist. And then uh, now we're doing Rebel Capitalist Live, which is an event in Miami, June 11th to the 13th, where I've got you know, Mike Maloney, uh, Jeff Snyder, Brent Johnson. Robert uh, Barnes, Zang, who I love Robert and found from your show. Yeah, all those guys and gals coming down there uh, live, face to face. It's not over Zoom. Amazing. And, yeah. And so that's kind of how it's blossomed. I think the channel has close to maybe 290, 300,000 subscribers. And it, it, it grows quickly if I do the videos. I haven't had much time to do videos the last week or so because I've been traveling. But uh, that's what gets us to where we are today. Well, when you talk about you were surprised people would want to hear about your talks about macroeconomics, I think that goes to uh, so, so many people who kind of specialize in that make it, I don't know. I, I learned from an English teacher once, if you can't actually explain the meaning of a word clearly and simply, you might not actually know the meaning of the word. So when yeah, you've got yeah, like professionals right. 
who are talking about macroeconomics, either they're deliberately obscuring it so that they don't have any competition or they don't really understand it. They can go through the motions, but they don't yep. really understand it. Whereas with you and your blank piece of paper and your pencil, you, you aren't even interested in it until you can really understand it. And you do it in a process that seems like very uh, approachable from regular people, but specifically about macroeconomics and a lot of this investing I I like that stuff too. I like puzzles. You know, I always think of an Excel spreadsheet like other people think of a New York Times crossword puzzle. I just love it. And and if you can plug things in and figure things out, it's so satisfying. And you could actually predict the future maybe in a, a little bit of a way. But recently, especially, but just over the years, there's the fundamentals are just not a way to make decisions, like actually figuring out how people act in aggregate, which was kind of where economics was the social science trying to figure out. Yeah. Or like Mises would say, praxeology, like it's not even what they should do, but it's what do they do? Like, that's all you yeah, need right. to know. And it doesn't have to be good or bad or utilitarian or not. But now it's it's like all, it seems like it's 100% political, you know, policy. Yeah, right. or or behind the scenes influence. And I don't have a handle on how, I mean, I feel like there's a code to be cracked and I try to watch like World Economic Forum videos and stuff, but I, I don't see how it's, I don't see how to predict that or analyze that. How did you, how do you deal with that? Well, that's a fantastic question. In fact, I just spoke with Lynn about that because we were talking about all these things and you always come to the conclusion that now we're not, trying to answer economic questions. We have to try to answer political questions. And Lynn flat out said, that's true, but I don't know what my edge is there. Right. I definitely have a, a definitive edge when it comes to economics, analyzing companies, trying to figure out what things are cheap, what things are expensive. Um, but in understanding how the, the monetary system works, the Euro dollar system, understanding how the Fed works with quantitative easing. You know, Lynn has a huge edge edge there. I think I, I might to a certain degree. But when you start trying to figure out if the government is going to uh, enact universal basic income, and I mean, we already have it to a certain degree with the stimulus yeah. checks, but if that's going to become permanent, um, and then what type of regulation that they're going to uh, impose in the future or what types of regulations they're not going to retract that that's so difficult to figure out and unfortunately those are the things we need to figure out in order to make good investment decisions not only good investment decisions but good decision decisions on how you can maintain and or maximize your personal freedom one thing that I've been struggling with a lot lately is, you know, I, I've got, compared to most people, I've, I've got a significant, I've got significant resources when it comes to financial resources. I, I can go out and I can buy a nice car or, or what most people would say, oh, I wish I could do that. Most of those things I can do pretty easily. But I've been back in the United States for about six months. And especially when I was down in Tucson over the last, I don't know, month or so, 
it doesn't matter how much money you have. Life sucks. <laughs> it, 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 if you're used to just going to restaurants and enjoying yourself. Right. And I mean, I don't know what it's like in LA, but. Oh, uh, I've been to I a mean, restaurant like once in the past year. And really the biggest problem now is I just fear that they are really going to keep us under house arrest unless we allow that gene therapy, I mean, which makes everybody sick. Like it makes everybody sick to get, to get those shots. And I feel like they're that, I mean, I really feel like I'll have to move <laughs> you know? and then where do you move? But that's what yeah. I'm afraid of is that and it's like, if, you, you can't be rich enough. Like if you want to access that stuff, you are going to have to submit to them putting something directly in your veins that really has not been fully disclosed. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a, a, a vaccine passport. Or, you know, when I was in, I mean, to your point, I don't know how the restaurants are there. They're probably most of them closed maybe, but in Tucson, I mean, you, you got to get a two hour wait. You can't get an Uber. It takes you an hour to get an Uber at the, after, and that's if you're lucky, you can get one. But and it's just so many are closed down, which is heartbreaking. Yeah. Like that, that level of, of, um, it's, you know, sinister, evil, whatever. Like they, they just that the power the government has to do that. And like, this goes with my, the, um, macro question in that I feel like if you knew who was in control and what their actual goals were, I mean, the goals can like, people can speculate on the goals being like totally esoteric or occult or just like fear and greed, whatever. If you knew who was in control, if you knew what their actual levers were that they could use, which I guess you do like monetary and fiscal policy. I feel like we have been shown that like, we one of the squishy things in trying to evaluate economic trends used to be how people would vote or react. And I feel like we've seen in this past year, they are in complete control of how people feel and react. Like I, I feel like the consent of the governed is, is totally subordinated or suborned by the propaganda. And that that's, that's a great word. Yeah. That's, you a, can't. That's, that's, that's the, that's the correct word. And so let, let's take my personal situation as an example. And this is very consistent with regardless of the friends I have around the world. And a lot of them have a lot more resources than I do. You know, I was just talking to Hugh Hendry uh, via text the other day. He's in St. Bart's. And he was telling me how he, he's pissed off because they've got the borders there closed. So even the billionaires and even the hedge fund guys are and gals are, are really trying to figure this all out but let's use my personal situation no wife no kids single guy that can literally go anywhere on the planet earth what do you do what do you that's the situation i'm in right now there's nowhere you can go there's absolutely no place to go where you can just have this type of freedom i've, I've been looking at tanzania because that's the only place and don't put it you know I, i'm someone that would easily get on a plane tomorrow into Tanzania if I thought I could get back to Rebel Capitalist Pro. That's my only hang-up right now with going to Tanzania and just hanging out until we get, who knows what happens, but just trying to figure it out out there where you can just live your life. But that guy's but, dead now. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, so but who that, knows what's what's next there? Oh, but you're just well, saying gal, for the next couple of months. Yeah, the gal that has taken over hasn't instituted any of the uh, you know, what, what would be considered normal measures that the rest of the world is is taking right now. So hopefully it, it'll stay the same. Yeah. But you're right. E even that is up in the air. So what I started to do is say, listen, 
I normally focus on how to make money, how to grow your wealth and macroeconomics. But right now, for me personally, I've got to figure out how I'm going to maximize my liberty first and foremost. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have freedom, you can have all the money in the world and it doesn't make any difference. You could be in Tucson right now and you could have all the money in the world and you still can't get a, a reservation. You can't get an Uber. You can't live the way you are accustomed to living. And take it to an extreme, you could be a billionaire. And if you're in pri a prison cell somewhere, it, it doesn't do you much good. So <laughs> you, you got to have that. Yeah, you got to have that personal freedom uh, first and foremost. So I, I've tried to figure out how can as, as the, how can the entire world be like this? Not just a country or the entire world. And you say, oh, George, well, Florida's great. I agree. <laughs> Florida Florida's better. But still, I'm at Whole Foods yesterday just trying. And I've got my the, the mask on, for heaven's sakes. And I'm trying to get a salad. And the gal's yelling at me. Put on your gloves. Put on your gloves. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just going to pick it up and put it in my cart for heaven's sake. Put on the gloves. It's like, dude, you know, relax here. So you, you really can't get away from the hysteria, let's call it. So then you have to ask, why? Like, how can this happen? And so what I started to do is I started to really research what they did in Germany, lead, you know, starting in the early, I believe it was the mid-1920s, but especially in the early 30s, leading up to the uh, World War II. And... The, the, the propaganda they use because as Americans, you know, you don't really think about it, but if you ask the average American, why were, why did the Germans or, or any group, Soviets or, you know, what we've done here in the United States to some degree to certain groups of individuals, uh, maybe the Native Americans and like, you know, why were we able as human beings to commit atrocities on other humans? Like how, how can you do that? And we, as people, we like to think that we would never do that, ever. Like if we were that restaurant owner during Jim Crow, we would have served, well, we would have served everybody. Right, we that's were that the funny soldier, part. The Nazis are the ones who think they're anti, you know, the, and the people who are, say that call other people Nazis are the ones yeah. who are like the mask Nazis are the ones like, don't you understand? <laughs> like, this is the problem. Yeah. But, but the, the way you get those people that are, uh, so the question becomes, okay, in Germany, was everyone just evil? Right. And, 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 and silver, were, were all these atrocities on this group, that group, were all the people committing those atrocities or just going along with it, not saying anything, were they just evil people? No, 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 no. These, they're just normal people, just like you and I, for the most part, but they just got, they, they became victims to propaganda. And that's why I wanted to point out this word. So how is it that they were able to do that? Well, I, I've really dove into this and the way they did it is uh, several different ways, but two ways in particular is they started to convince people that rational thinking should not be a priority. In fact, you should just forget about it. It really doesn't matter. What really matters are feelings. That's the priority. 
So there is no higher. So what and I said in a tweet last night, it's almost like the United States has replaced God, because when I was growing up, whether you're an atheist or, or whatever, it was just the, the majority of the people, you know, that's kind of the highest level, a higher power, let's say. But now what we've done as a society is we've replaced that, in my opinion, with feelings. There, there is no higher priority. There is no higher power than someone's feelings. That, that I think, goes with the fact that, I, and I blame Trump for this, bringing identity politics to the right at long last, where it was going towards the Ron Paul ideology stuff about thinking, and he had college kids burning dollar bills, and they just took that energy and they, they made even that emotional thing on the right. Because if you ask people what they really like about Trump, and they say, because he's mean to people I hate, like a lot of people have given me that answer. I think it goes way back, though. I think it goes back to the early 1980s and helicopter parenting. Yeah. If, if you look at the research from, uh, a, a, I believe he's a psychologist, I think his name is Jonathan Haidt. He's done a lot of interviews with Jordan Peterson, and he speaks with Dave Rubin. He's kind of in that that group. Um, I, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name, but he's done a lot of research on this. And in the early 80s, we due to demographics and a lot of other uh, variables, we, we have helicopter parenting. I remember when I was growing up, you, you don't, you didn't wear a helmet when you're riding a bicycle. I mean, <laughs> right. what are you talking about? Like, like that was, that was nonsense. I would go at seven, eight years old. I would take bike rides during the summer when you're out of school. I would take bike rides with my buddies miles away. I mean, we'd go up in the hills. My mom wouldn't know where I was from. I mean, for eight, nine hours, I'd be gone. Just had no clue. Don't you it, think it, that it just didn't matter? Now, you, you, a kid that goes out on a, you know, a 14-year-old that goes out on a little Razor scooter just in the cul-de-sac, they, they've got them in, in hockey equipment, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. They've got health, they've got, you know, radio gear in case you get lost. And it's like, what? I have, have a theory done? about that. Don't you think that it could be risk aversion based on the fact that you have fewer children that you've invested more in? That's into? why I said demographics. Okay, right. Yeah, that's why I yeah, said demographics. Right. It has a lot to do with the demographics yeah. because people start to have fewer children. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I, we were yeah. overprotective of the, the children we, we did have. And that led yeah. to this whole generation of, of being, oh, let's protect not only them physically, but let's protect their feelings. Let's protect the way they feel because they're, we, 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 as a society, we became like maternal. Like, like everyone was our, our children and we need to protect. And you see it even now with monetary policy. See, we can't go through any pain. We can't take the pain of a recession. It, it's because people can't, aren't allowed to feel the pain anymore. You see it with, with people prescribing drugs, you know, instead of exercise yeah. or something like that. It, it's, 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 it's pervasive throughout our entire society and now we, we've seen it in, in colleges. We see it with safe spaces. We see it with all these things. So I, I, I would, I don't know if Trump had anything to do with it or not. I think that's an interesting take. But I would argue that no, this I agree with long you. That precedes is, uh, yes. Trump and that the society, it was already kind of brainwashed into that, uh, that mentality. There's two books I must recommend to you by uh, both by a guy, Guido Preparata. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's like Italian and American and maybe something else. The one book I was going to recommend to you was called Conjuring Hitler. 
um, along with another book called The Politics of Cultural Despair by Fritz Stern. Those two books, as to the extent that you want to look into Germany, The Politics of Cultural Despair would be like the kind of official narrative of the psychology behind it all. But Preparatus Conjuring Hitler is more about outside influences deliberately enhancing a dysfunctional subculture like Britain wanting to undermine Germany by picking uh, whatever kind of um, unrest they were directing it, perhaps. But that was another that was a Preparata book. But Preparata also wrote The Ideology of Tyranny, where he identifies and I don't know anything about Michel Foucault, um, but he actually says that in the 80s, this philosophy of Michel Foucault came where it was all about identities rather yes, than like ideology. Yeah. So so you're absolutely right. It totally predates. And 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 this was just, I, I think, probably the culmination of it all. They knew that they could they were having a little bit of a problem with the Ron Paul element because there were still people who had that legacy of being able to think. And we were yeah. raised by people like my dad, you know, who was like a truck driver watching Milton Friedman on Sundays on PBS of all places. And that so I think that there there was like a little tipping point there that they had to seize the day. And the same thing with like Obamacare is just a tipping point to get like more than 50 percent of the economy basically controlled by the government. But, yeah, the mm -hmm. seeds obviously were set decades ago. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that, that's right. Postmodernism. And Foucault, I've heard uh, Wein the Weinstein brothers and Peterson and Rubin, those those guys talk about that uh, quite extensively. And I think that's where you get to a point where we are now where you're, you're not a guy, you're not a gal. It's just however you feel that morning, that that's just kind of what you are. And it seems just insane for most of us, but those who kind of buy into that belief system, for them, that just, it just makes sense, which again, brings us to where we are today, which I think is makes us as a society so susceptible to any type of propaganda. And the number, this, the second thing that they did extremely well is the use of media. And you say, well, duh, George, they'd probably done that before. <laughs> to a certain degree, but not like they did it. It was, it was actually, um, they built, they had these very inexpensive radios built, which at the time was kind of like a novelty, like, oh, wow, you got a radio? But they made them very cheap. So the majority of households in Germany had a radio <laughs> and they started to, uh, and it wasn't just, oh, let's put uh, you know Hitler on and have him do speeches. To his, the, he was there, and then they put them in schools too, in the classrooms. And but it was all the entertainment. They would do shows, they would do music, they would do all these things. But it had all of the propaganda inter, in, intertwined in the message, right? So if, if you kind of think that through and layer it over what we see today, it's the exact same thing. And I'm not saying that there's uh, Nazis in charge or anything. But what I am saying is the central planners are using the exact same playbook. I mean, you can't turn on ESPN anymore. You can't watch a movie anymore. Right. You can't watch a basketball game, a hockey game. You can't watch a, a, a TV show without getting this political narrative jammed down your throat constantly. Constantly. And it never ends. They're even transforming sports itself, which was kind of the last bastion of objectivity. I remember tears in my eyes when my son would go play Little League and my husband would go with him and it was their last moment. And if you like talk about feeling pain, half the kids are in pain at the end of it, you know, because they're losing. 
And that is real. And it makes them understand the consequences of actions are not always punishments. They're just impact of how hard you work or what you're good at or whatever. And, and I think during the kind of where the social control mechanism was war, they did maintain that two side of sports. But now they, I've noticed like ever since they started hitting the NFL with the take a knee and nobody was watching anymore. And I thought, how can they, they don't want people to watch the NFL, which is like the army. And uh, so they've moved away from that and they've gotten to where now that so one of the things is when the kids sports, they're letting boys, um, transgender boys play in girls sports, which takes out the objectivity of the, you know, like, cause they have girls sports so that the girls have a chance because of like a physiological difference. Otherwise girls right. could play boys sports and they would all lose every time. So they, they take, they're taking that like kind of objectivity element out of it. And with all these like COVID things, they're not like injuries that are keeping people from being in sports. They're, they're obviously propaganda to be like someone, you know, just tested positive for COVID and he is staying home like that as a part of it. But then you have all these like random underdogs who haven't been in the playoffs in 70 years coming up. And it's almost like everyone gets a trophy. So they've taken the objectivity yeah. out of the sports thing too. So that I think that's very significant about how they've moved from the war model to the information control kind of pure propaganda just for that model for what it's worth. Yeah. It, it's when you look at it through the lens, it's obvious what's going on. Then the question becomes, how does this play out? Like, what's the end game? And if, if, if we, I, I don't want to be too alarmist because, you know, this started in, in let's use, go back to the Germany example. This started in the early or maybe in late 1920s, early 1930s. They had a good 10 years. So, I mean, assuming, but then again, we have social media now. So that would probably make the process a lot faster. Who knows? But, um, I, I think you, then you've got to say, okay, well, what is the message? And another thing that they did extremely well is they had a defined enemy. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to say, okay, assuming they're going along with this playbook, which it looks like they're doing, who is the defined enemy? <laughs> and what is their, what is the objective? What is their objective end game? And then we have, then the, looking at the glass half full, we've got to realize that if they, they, as a society, they had made a few different decisions as far as electing a different person or something like that, it, history would have been changed. There, there, we, we might not have had what we saw in the 1940s. We might not have had those atrocities. So there, there is hope. I, I want to make sure that I, I have right. a message of hope that if we wake enough people up to what is happening, we, we can affect the future. Uh, we're not doomed to uh, recreate the problems and the mistakes that other societies and our society to a certain extent has made in the past. But we've got to figure out who is the enemy because it could be a lot of different things. I've thought about, is it, is it, um, who knows? Is it, is it the white Christian male? I mean, I don't know. Is, is that their enemy? Is it, uh, is it humanity? Because if you if you look at climate change, you know a lot of the, the people, and it's not there yet, but you could reason how hu humanity in and of itself is the is the bad guy. 
Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But we, we've got to pay attention to these things to try to figure out what it is and kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. And the and one thing also, too, the narrative in Germany got more and more extreme. In 1931, they didn't come right out, and, right. You, you know, even the Nazi political party, and say, hey, this is what we want. Bam, 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 bam. We're just yeah. going to beat you over the head with it every single day. It was, it was subtle at first, and then it just became more and more and more and more and more and more extreme until you got to what you had in the early 1940s or so. So we, I think what I'm doing personally is I'm just trying to pay attention to the cues around me and hear what types of messages from the central planners like IMF, World Economic Forum, uh, a lot of politicians around the world, what messages are becoming louder and louder and louder, especially through the vehicles of this propaganda uh, channels that, that we've seen through media? I think that there's a, uh, uh, what I hear, I've just, just woke up to this just after the January 6th thing. And even just even more recently than that, that I started watching this old TV show, Mr. Robot. It's old, but the first thing the narrator says on the first episode is there is a group of people who control the world. They play God without asking they do this, they do that. And I was like, wow, I think that's completely true. Like, I think exactly how he described it is completely true. And I thought, why is this TV show telling me that? And I really had to think about it. And there's all sorts of theories, revelation of the method, or uh, they, I don't know, just want to make you crazy. But I started to think, I think their real problem is, and the whole world's problem is the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And I'm, I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I'm not a conservative. I think that a free society is the goal. I think the idea of a self-limiting government is the utopian fantasy and not the free society, which because society is self-ordering. But there is, we're not getting closer to the free society. The further we're getting away from the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, it's not going my way. <laughs> so right, right, right. it's going their way. And I think that that I call it the thin parchment line or the thin ecru line, like the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, I think is a problem for them. And I think the Second Amendment keeps like uh, our dedication to the Second Amendment, for example, keeps all the rest of the countries that have already confiscated the guns uh, from really jackbooting their people like they are not going nuts because they want everyone in America to say, see what happens. It's fine. You can trust your government All none of those countries have guns and the government doesn't get out of hand. We're the last straw. And I feel like why did Mr. Robot tell me that there's this overlord thing who wants to oppress me? I think that they want us to put the wrong target in our sites. So like the January 6th thing, the Boogaloo, they're like, yeah, the militia who shows up with selfie sticks instead of guns. I never really understood that narrative. But they're saying, uh, oh, these guys want to overthrow the U.S. government. So they have, right. um, you know, they, they, they went in there to stop the electoral certification. I'm like, they actually... They, what they, those insurrectionists stopped was counting the votes. You know, they stopped the only hope of questioning the electoral certification because of the process. And Robert Barnes kind of um, shored up my thinking on this, not uh, directly, but, 
you know, just fighting lawsuits and stuff seems to slow them down a little bit, you know? And I feel like they are, they are, when you hear things like the Boogaloo and the Proud Boys, people want to turn that getting a lot of press. I, it makes me want to just, you know, get out my son, my sign, like restore the 10th amendment. Like that's where we should be focusing mm -hmm. on actually the process really is the can kicking and maybe the whole existence, human, human existence, like the whole goal for the people is to spend our entire lives forever kicking that can of tyranny. And this is one way to do it. I've, I'm beginning to think that. Um, that, that, that that's their that objective? We, that we, that their objective, the big they, their objective in the short term is yeah, right. to get us to abandon the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, by just right. throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying government's super AFU'd, you people are not following the rules. See, that's the thing. Like, if they followed the Constitution or any of the state and local rules during the last year or took cases to court that actually got heard and executed, like, if you, if you insisted on a certain amount of integrity, even as the laws are, yeah, right. we'd be better off. But we're so frenzied that we we don't do those little things. That's why I like Barnes so much. Well, that's why he and I are suing the Fed for the, oh, really? know, the, the Federal Reserve Act. Yeah. yeah. You put a lot of content out. I can't follow everything. So that's important. I think that is all we can. Yeah, because I think they, they, the they, they, they blatantly violated the, the Federal Reserve Act back in 2020 in March, in my opinion. Oh, by buying so, bonds I, and stocks no. and the, uh, private yeah, every, stuff? Everything they're doing, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I spoke to Barnes about that. He and I were having dinner in Vegas about six months ago. And I said, well, you know, why don't we just sue the Fed? And he says, well, yeah, you can do it under FOIA. And he kind of outlined it. So uh, two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, we announced it where uh, the first stage of it is to request the documents. Obviously, they'll say no. And then you sue them under the FOIA, which is the Freedom yes. of Information Act. Uh, you... We don't. Robert is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he's so handling. Powerful. And so I said, uh, "Yeah, well, I'll throw out the first twenty-five thousand because the first phase of it, you need about a hundred thousand." Yeah, right. It's I said, right. "I'll put up the first twenty-five, and then we'll do a GoFundMe for the other seventy-five. But what happens is every dollar that someone donates, I'll match it with another dollar out of my own pocket. So what'll end up happening is I put in sixty-two-five. And everyone else puts in 37.5 yeah. as far as the GoFundMe campaign. And we hit our goal in under 36 hours. Wow, really? Oh, yeah. I had to close it a long time ago. So wow. Barnes is in the process now of uh, requesting the information. And we'll do videos that come out periodically updating everyone. And obviously the people that donated to the GoFundMe campaign as to how the progress is going. But it, you know, that first phase will take about a year. But, but the whole I didn't want to get off topic there. But the whole point is... There, the law is what is supposed to constrain the central planners, whether it's the Federal Reserve Act or the Constitution. And it, it's what protects us from them. That, that's the whole point. It, it protects us from. So at the very least, we've got to focus on maintaining the integrity uh, of the Constitution and, and I think the Federal Reserve Act as well. But we've got to do, I mean, that's step one that we can do. And then if we're cognizant of all these other things and that gives us uh, a, a good chance, I think that where I am with it right now, as far as their end game objective, 
I think it's socialism. And I let's just give them the benefit. So who is them? I always say they, them, the, the yeah. you know, the global elite or whatever. Who does Klaus work for? Yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe it's Klaus. So it's maybe it, it, when I say them, I talk about the all these people that go to Davos. So that would be the World Economic Forum is who puts it on, the IMF, uh, the the corporate leaders that really rub elbows with uh, Klaus Schwab is his name. And a lot of these politicians, most of them, I think, especially on the left, I mean, the right's not very good at all, but or either, but the, the, the people on the left are, are, have really lost their marbles to a, a large degree. But um, it's all these politicians, you know, they're the, the global elite, the, the big banksters as well. They're they're in that group. It's the people that really benefit from the Cantillon effect. That's a, you want to What's sum the it up. Cantillon That's, effect? So the Cantillon effect is something that it, it's, it's a theory that I think is very true, if you think about it, where the political insiders and the financial insiders that are closest to the money printing will be the ones yes. who benefit from it. Because yes. if you think about just creating more currency units in the real economy, chasing the same amount of goods and services, at some point you're going to get consumer price inflation. Right. Now you may say, well, Georgia didn't do anything when they printed money back in 08. Well, that, that really wasn't money printing. That was quantitative easing. That was creating bank reserves. And that's a whole different thing. People conflate the two. They say that this is money printing and that's money printing. But there's a lot of nuance in that term. If you really get hyper-focused on the amount of currency units that are in the real economy chasing goods and services, when that goes up to a certain degree, especially with the velocity, you're, you're going to get consumer price inflation. So with the uh, where was I going with that? Uh, completely uh, well, the cancel on effect, the people who oh, the are closest effect, to the sorry. Federal yeah. Reserve. So, right. So when you get all that, the real money printing, when there's more, like to say, physical currency that's going out, if you want to look at it, kind of the old school way of doing it. The people that get the money first are able to spend that money before the prices of, of the stuff goes up. Right. So that so in today's terms, more modern terms, where we don't have we're not physically printing green pieces of paper, that would be all of the politicians that benefit from giving contracts to specific uh, groups. You know, we look at this three trillion dollar infrastructure project or four trillion or whatever it is, and they say how great it's going to be to build these roads and bridges. Okay, well, who's building the roads and bridges? Most likely, it's most of it's going to be wasted. But the money that does get spent is going to be spent on corporation hiring groups that are going to give kickbacks to the politicians totally. for hiring them in the first place. And who gets bailed out when the Fed does quantitative easing, that form of money printing? Well, that's going to be the big banks. That's going to be the financial insiders. So you're creating all of these, all of this additional, quote unquote, money. And before it increases prices, these people are able to spend it and get the benefit of the, the, the free money. And then so that, that's wages, the effect. The wages, so those people get to spend their new money on old prices, and then go. the prices go up afterwards. But the this, I think, why I don't understand why anyone with any moral sense likes Keynes at all. He actually said we have to inflate because wages are sticky and you can't cut their wages. So you just have to inflate the prices out from under them. So the third yeah. level would be that the wages, the prices go up before the wages go up. So it's they lag. 
yes. So the first guy gets everything, then the then whatever. But um, this makes me think now that we're talking about they, and this was a question um, for Lynn, maybe is so I've looked at the World Economic Forum partners, and they have a lot of public companies who are that are their partners. And I thought there should be like a Dow and S&P, and then there should be a WEF. There should be a World Economic Forum. Like those are the companies that are going to, like Warren Buffett would say, going to be here in 20 years, anything on the WEF. So uh, so if it's Google and also Black & Decker and Chase and or and in, I guess, smaller guys, whatever, you could make an index where you're pretty sure that if it has normal returns, it probably has less than the same kind of risk because they're not going anywhere, those companies. They're investing in the World Economic Forum type policies, whatever. So this is a question that uh, I thought of when I was listening to a, I forget who you were talking to, but the guy was saying, you need to think about what the Fed will do, not what they should do. And it made me think about the idea of like, I would say libertarians die by the sword, but they don't live by it. So like when Palantir went public, I wanted to buy it, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Like I just couldn't do it. So I want to have a WEF. I want to have an index of World Economic Forum, but like that's just the worst. But is that is that really a moral dilemma or is it a mental block? Like how do you deal with the fact that the, the world is the way it is? Like I want to defend the constitution, even though I think that it's a, that a free society is the only just society. So, but you have to live in the world as it is. So how do you uh, approach investing like that? Like Mm, is it is it a good company? Is it a bad company? Does it make you know? Does it make guns or tobacco or you know surveillance software? Yeah, I, I don't really get uh, morally involved in in well, I shouldn't say in business. You do. You, there's a lot of ethics and morals that go into business. But as far as just like I would have no issue buying a tobacco company. No, I me neither. No I was issue. kidding about the tobacco and the yeah, guns. Buying, Those I, are... mean, I own I own coal stocks. I own uh, no, uranium like... or oil producers. But I think what you, I get what you're saying, though, and if you look at what I think their end game is being socialism, the avenue that, as they've stated, uh, to achieve more central planning at the very least, is basically through fascism. And I'm not talking about the fascism where they're going to be going after specific, uh, you know, races or ethnic groups or anything like that. I'm talking about corporatism where yes, you have private ownership of the, the means of production, but it's at the end of the day, it's really all controlled by the government. Right. And if you look at these people like uh, Benioff, Mark Benioff with yes. Salesforce, Salesforce, I mean, he is like a disciple of Klaus. <laughs> and if you, he even uses the same words that we've got to use yeah. stakeholder capitalism, we've got to get away from shareholder capitalism. And they demonize Milton Friedman, by the way, both of them do yeah. extensively. And so if, if you look at these types of, uh, corporations that might be included in your ETF, uh, they're, they're going to be controlled and therefore their profits are going to be more and more and more controlled by these insiders and by these global elite. Well, I don't personally, I don't think that's an investing uh, thesis that you might argue that, okay, well, they're less likely to go out of business. They're more likely to get bailed out. Right. And I would agree, but I don't, make my investment decisions based on that. What I try to do is go back to Jim Rogers and ask myself what's cheap and what's expensive. And one thing that one tailwind that we have now as investors is a lot of the things that are cheap 
are completely out of favor when it comes to the narrative that's being given to us by the World Economic Forum or by the, the central planners. As an example, uh, oil, for the most part, yeah. is completely uninvestable. I think Jim Cramer said the other day. Uh, things like <laughs> coal or uranium. These things, uranium. Uh, you know, especially back in March of 2020, when I really loaded up on these things, they were incredibly cheap. I mean, you can't get much cheaper than minus $38 a barrel. <laughs> yeah, right. That is, was crazy. <laughs> I don't even get that. that. That's pretty damn cheap. <laughs> but uh, so a lot of these things that I would consider cheap and good, they're, they're really out of favor. They're, they're the antithesis. Right, right, of right, right. The, There's the, your opportunity. Yeah. So I think that is your opportunity. And that kind of serves both purposes. You're not playing nice. along with right. them. In fact, you're really giving them the bird. While yeah, at the same right. time, you're making a good investment decision long term. Excellent. That was so awesome because I always thought that too. I was like, people said, we have to keep up with China and Russia. And I'm like, well, if we were free, they'd be having to keep up with us. Mm. So that's that. So, okay, let's just, um, I was, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was how, if, you know, you, the people who listen to you are already um, immersed in, or at least dabbling in managing some of their own financial affairs, but uh, how do how would people kind of get started? Is do you first of all do you do personal consultations or do you have like kind of intro stuff on? I know you have Rebel Capitalist Pro, you have the Rebel Capitalist Live event. Like, how can people access some of your um, wisdom and guidance? I mean, ninety nine percent of it's just free on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, as you know, with this little rebel capitalist channel that I started a couple months ago, I, it's it's not edited. It's by no means scripted. I just get on there periodically when I get a chance and just do a, a 10 or 30 minute, 20 minute live stream and just give just my thoughts on what I'm thinking about at that time. And it's right off the cuff. And uh, I talk about investment stuff, personal freedom, entrepreneurship, a variety of different things. And if you just want to subscribe to that, uh, that's probably the best way to do it. And then uh, if you want something that's more uh, professional, let's say, <laughs> and more well thought out, uh, you can watch the George Gammon channel because that's edited and we kind of you know, put more thought into those videos. And then, like you said, Rebel Capitalist Pro is where I partner with Lynn Alden, who uh, is you know, obviously extremely professional and knowledgeable, and also another gentleman by the name of Chris Macintosh, who's a, a hedge fund manager, who's had just years and decades of experience in actually uh, not just the research component of it, but managing you know hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. And a lot of times, there's a big difference between just doing the research and having an idea, and 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 putting a hundred million dollars to work. Uh, there, right. that, that's a different uh, mentality. So it's great to have both those individuals on board with that project. And it's just an online forum where people can access the research we do live streams. And then the, the Rebel Capital Live. But as far as consulting, I don't do yeah. anything like that. I, I, I just don't have the time. I might in the right. future, but nothing right now. Everything, pretty much, again, 99% of what I do in my ideas are just free on a YouTube channel. And why do you do it? I mean, it seems like it, it, it's a, you're a busy guy. It takes a lot of time. I mean, do you like talking to these cool people? Do you always looking for a challenge, like to share your thoughts? Yeah, all of the above. Right. I just, I'd be doing it anyway. Right. I mean, what, before I started the YouTube channel, yeah. 
whether I was doing the TV show or the, right, the, right. the real estate or whatever I was doing, this is what I was thinking about constantly. I, and trust yes. me, I don't, just because I have two YouTube channels now and all this other stuff we've been talking about, I don't think about macro any more now than I did five years ago <laughs> or three years ago. I, I don't think about it one minute more. It completely consumes my my life. It consumes my train of thought, whether I'm in the shower in the morning, whether I'm eating lunch, whether I'm at the gym, <laughs> whether I'm doing YouTube, it just doesn't matter. This is what I think about constantly. So it's just a, a, a very neat opportunity for me to be able to share my thoughts. And it, it, to this day, it blows me away that people are actually even interested in hearing what I have to say or what I'm actually thinking about that, that that's very surreal. And then, uh, yeah, the opportunity to talk to like-minded individuals and people who are far smarter than I am. That's just, uh, I just, I, I have to pinch myself very often when I'm talking to a Jim Rogers or a Rick rule or a Doug Casey or, uh, you know, any of the people that I've been able to to talk to, even guys like Richard Wolf, you know, I've, I really enjoyed speaking with him. He's a, a very famous Marxist and people that I, that I might not agree with completely. I still really enjoy as long as they're intellectually yeah. curious. Honest. And, they, they yeah. 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 And, and yeah, they're really totally. trying to figure things out and, and they enjoy a back and forth and you know, they're not name calling and just, just being ridiculous and emotional. Uh, they're, but if they're truly trying to do some research and, and have an intellectual debate, go back and forth, I really, really like talking to those people because it helps me get out of my own echo chamber. Yeah. If and they're smart and honest, to, you have yeah, to but, but that goes listen back to what, to what we said. were talking about before yeah. and how, what's, what's our, our first line of defense against propaganda. It's doing the opposite of what they want us to do. And they want us to eliminate rational thought. Right. They want us to eliminate critical thinking. And they want us to prioritize feelings. <laughs> well, th there's no better way to increase your ability to think critically than get outside of your echo chamber and talk to indiv individuals who are intellectually honest and curious who might see the world a little bit differently than you do. So again, that, that's another way, another reason I'm so blessed to be able to do the things that I'm doing now in the Rebel Capitalist show and, and speaking to people just like you. It has been a real pleasure. I was so thrilled that you were going to give some time because I, I know how busy you are because you're, you put out so much content and I know that that's, you also do so much for your own personal liberty and uh, spend a lot of time just thinking, I'm sure. So I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, George Gammon of the Rebel Capitalists. Thank you for having me. Are you enjoying this special episode of the Propaganda Report? If you are, you might enjoy our weekday show, The Drive Time News Blast. 30 minutes of news of the day from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice. We listen to the news and peel away the propaganda so you don't have to. It's free in the Propaganda Report feed on your favorite podcasting platform. And if that's not enough for you, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash propaganda report. There you can get a full 45 minutes of daily news from a perspective of truth, liberty, and justice 
or choose higher tiers that give you all of that, plus access to our very special disappearing patron parties, live streamed cocktail parties with us and like-minded patrons, two Fridays every month that are always a blast. Hope you are enjoying this special episode of the Propaganda Report and hope to catch you at a patron party soon. 